0: Gen X Playback episode number 25.
1: Ah, it's Between the Sheets with Gen X Playback. No, I'm just kidding. So, Scott, no one is going to get that reference outside of (laughs) Philadelphia. We've used it a couple of times. Christopher Knight and Between the Sheets.
0: Which was a a great show that played music like this, kind of romantic. That was the idea.
1: It was typically set on the weekends, usually Friday, Saturday nights. And people would call in and request songs. You know, light a fire in the fireplace. Sit down, maybe with a glass of wine. And a loved one and... Just listen to music throughout the night. TV's off. It's just a nice quiet evening at home. But that was that was between the sheets. Anyway, welcome to the Gen X Playback Show. Your favorite show about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I am Sean. And you are listening to Christopher Cross. The guy who kind of burst on the scene around 1980, 1981. With a Grammy, very uh, successful debut album. This is a song sailing off of that debut album, which he won. Uh, I think he did the um, the four main Grammys that year, which is very hard to do. He's one of the few artists in music history to pull that off. But Christopher Cross actually hails from the hometown of San Antonio, Texas, Sean. San Antonio. And San Antonio, Texas has really become one of our strongest cities to follow gen x playback outside of pennsylvania when sean when we started this podcast we really didn't think we were going to attract anybody outside of lancaster county which is about a 20 mile radius from where we're broadcasting now which is the largest podcast in nestville pennsylvania but sean you know just the fact that especially recently san antonio texas has blown up on our readout chart that we that we can see and we're really grateful for it. San Antonio. i have never been there. It kind of makes me want to go down there and visit San Antonio sometime.
0: Yeah. It's You know, I, I've i been to Texas, but Texas is such a huge state. It's I don't feel like I've actually been to the state of Texas because I, I spent some time in Amarillo. Uh, but I would love to get to San Antonio. San Antonio is the river walk. Uh, you know, you and I grew up, uh, grew up watching the Sixers, and they'd always go down and play the Spurs. And mm-hmm. usually there would be some clip during the broadcast of the Riverwalk. And I always just thought it was so neat.
1: Yeah. And I know this isn't a, a Gen X reference, but one of Amy's favorite movies is Miss Congeniality. And, uh, you know, it's, it's basically the background of it is it's a beauty uh, competition, much like Miss USA or Miss America where it, and, but the competition was held in San Antonio. And I thought it looked like they filmed it on location. I thought, yeah, it looks a pretty cool looking neat city to go and visit. Um, you know, you Gen Xers will will remember, or maybe you won't remember. But about the only thing I know about San Antonio is the Alamo, right? And that Pee Wee's bike is in the basement. <laughs> That's so.
0: right. That's right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: um, the only other Gen X reference was that Ozzy Osbourne relieved himself at the Alamo, and I think went to jail. Okay. Uh, but so those are my two Alamo references. <laughs> other go. than
1: listen to the David Crockett album that we that we have as kids. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Fess Parker as as davy crockett and buddy epson as uh as his uh sidekick so Mm -hmm. san antonio we really do appreciate you uh making us you know a part of something that is now not only nationwide but you know we have a couple of countries across the globe that tune into gen x playback and uh who would have thought you know we're almost we're actually coming up on a year now that we've been starting this that we started this podcast and we're Certainly kind of amazed and appreciative of, of all the listeners that we kind of tapped into having this common conversation every week.
0: And the fact that you out there our listeners, you found us, we, you know, because Scott and I are terrible at marketing. <laughs> we, we've, we've put like zero effort into that side of things. And so somehow, whether whether those of you who are listening, you know, as Scott's pointing out our listeners there in San Antonio, whether some one person found out about us, whether the algorithm took us to them and they hopefully hopefully listeners in san antonio you're spreading the word telling your friends about us uh but you know scott has said that you know we've kind of started to grow in that area and it's 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 really neat to say
1: yeah we really do appreciate it so all right we're now at episode number 25 and i know peeling back the curtain here even though you listeners haven't, you've only missed, uh, we're going from one week to the next, but Sean and I actually haven't spoken in a little while. Right. It's, been, it's been like three weeks or so. <laughs> yeah, we had a couple of episodes in the can, and, and so we had to take some time off. But now we're back at it. Hopefully, we don't mess up too badly. But I think, that, you know, part of Gen X playback and part of the Gen X era is the fact that there, there was so much going on at the time, from, from pop culture to music to movies. And sports, for Sean and I, were a huge part. of of our childhood growing up, particularly baseball. Mm -hmm. Sean and I are absolutely huge baseball fans. We still are to this day. We love our Philadelphia Phillies. And, uh, you know, this isn't an episode about Phillies baseball, although you're going to hear some Phillies being brought up. We do have some biases, uh, as any baseball fan is for their hometown team. Right. But I think what we wanted to do is, because the Gen X era had so so many great players and so much great baseball in it, I thought we should take an episode – to kind of um, highlight those players. And you might hear some names that maybe you hadn't thought about in a while. And, you know, that can happen over time. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do an episode on on Julius Irving because as time goes on, Julius Irving kind of becomes a forgotten figure with, uh, you know, as, as the game continues to move on. And I think, why don't we take some time and talk about some of the great players that you and I remember as kids growing up, because there were quite a few to talk about
0: it. There were, and also because this was our lifetime. So these are our memories. And, you know, part of the reason why, you know, I think Scott points out that you want to remember some of these people, and not just in sports, but when we talk about the movies and the music and the the musicians, the actors. These are things that you know. As younger generations come along, it's I think it's important for us to kind of archive these things. You know, Scott and I actually believe it or not, Scott and I both were history majors (laughs) uh, with our our undergrad degrees. So it is uh, I think kind of near and dear to our hearts is to is to kind of you know preserve what happened. And with the the athletes of today, you know the 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 younger kids that watch the sports, you know they they might have some memory like. I'll, I'll back up a little bit and finish the thought here. It's, I actually saw your son, Connor, before I, I have seen you. I saw Connor last week. right? And we were talking a little bit about what we were going to discuss in this episode. Sure. And, you know, Connor is, because, you know, you raise your, your kids well, has pretty good knowledge about, uh, you know, the Gen X era. And he was asking me who was going to be on my list. And he did a pretty good job of picking a lot of players on my list. Good. And so, but... I think it's important to, to, to remember that because for the most part, your history seems to be when you're alive. I mean, it's, it's hard to remember back beyond when you first came on the scene. Although I will say that as you get older, I find it easier to go back in time, you know, where I'm more appreciative of things because now I understand that 10 years before I, I was born wasn't that long ago, where when you're a little kid, it seems like forever,
1: Sure, and, and it kind of helps you put a little bit of perspective on, on what you actually got to see. And I think that's important, too, because I don't have a lot of memories of 1970s baseball. I mean, I have some, but you know, less than what you're going to have in this conversation. Right, so right. My, my looking back on the 70s era is almost completely in a time capsule kind of way of looking at things, whereas... I really became a big baseball fan, about the age of eight or nine. And so that's 1979, 1980. Right. And from there on out, you know, I'm good to go. But for me to talk about some of these names, uh, and I'll bring out a name that we're going to talk about, is Johnny Bench. Okay. And the greatness of Johnny Bench. By the time Johnny Bench, I got to watch him play pretty much on a regular basis. And I remember them making such a big deal about Johnny Bench. And I thought to myself, but he's not that good now, you right. know, because he, he was already way, you know, he's past his prime at that point. He wasn't even, but by, by the time we
0: started watching, Johnny Bench was known more for his show called The Baseball Bunch. Yes, he
1: was. It was, I watched every Remember week.
0: that? Gen Xers out there, you know, it was, it was a Saturday morning show and- and it was Johnny Bench and a bunch of little kids and yeah. Tommy Lasorda, the manager of the Dodgers, would he was show up. The
1: dugout wizard,
0: yeah. And I think the seeing a good chicken San would San appear. The chicken
1: was on that too. So yeah.
0: I, I knew Johnny as this kind of goofy guy who would appear on this show. And then when he played, he didn't really catch a whole lot. He was mostly playing first base,
1: right. And that show was actually pretty popular for for, for a moment in time. Mm-hmm. So much so that the USA cable network decided to do their own kids show with a baseball player can you remember do you remember that I, show i don't remember okay. that it was mike schmidt and it was called scholastic sports academy i vaguely kind of remember that it wasn't that on for that. more than a handful of episodes right and i remember his his one guest was his teammate dick ruthven okay all right and i remember Schmidt putting on catcher's gear in that particular episode. So if you're a Gen Xer, if you're from this area, if you were a fan of of the USA network or early cable, maybe you remember it. Um, But I certainly, that was because I was, Mike Schmidt was my favorite player, particularly of all time back then. And now Uh, you know, so anything he did, I paid attention to. So I just remember him having that TV show. Uh, But that's Johnny Bench. So why don't we, uh, why don't we kind of give a little bit of a backdrop on, on where we're, how we're going to get to this. So what I wanted us to do in this particular episode is I want us to try and create our all-time Gen X baseball player list. Okay. So I didn't give Sean any particular criteria. You know, he could come up with the list anyway because, as we've mentioned so many times, lists are subjective. So he's going to have a list that's probably slightly different than my list, which is probably slightly different than the next person or maybe the viewer or the listener is going to come up with they're going to think of players in a different light than what you and i are so what was your criteria when you started to compile your list
0: well for me i I placed a lot of emphasis on players that i saw okay all right so the you know it's it's interesting that you say johnny bench I, I, I thought about him you know because growing up he was always mentioned as the gold standard mm-hmm. for catchers. I just didn't see him play. I've seen highlights I can appreciate him. He probably was the best of the era, but I didn't really see him play. So for me, a lot of it had to do with who I, who was the players that I saw who were the dominant players. I like defense mm-hmm. right so I probably have more players on my list who are good defensively. Okay. And also, who are good hitters? And and obviously, you say yeah. Obviously, hitters, but hitters were average, not not players who were necessarily swinging for home runs. So I probably lean more towards the average hitters, you okay. know, the guys who might have been batting
1: champions. Sure. And I know something. One of the criteria that I wanted to put in there is, uh, you know, how did that person perform when the lights were the brightest? Okay. And obviously you have certain players out there that were just so head and shoulders better than their peers at that particular time that you really didn't pay attention to that. But particularly, you know, sometimes when, when I was like trying to come up with a list for outfielders, right. How insanely hard that was. Yeah. I was. And so for me, I thought, you know, that's gotta, that's gotta play a little part in it. You know, how did that guy perform in, in the toughest moments in the postseason, like were they known as a postseason player? You know, were they somebody that could be depended on? So I think that influenced my list as well because I'm going to, I'm going to throw a name out there that I really expected to be on one of my two teams. I did a first team and a second team Right. was Dave Winfield. And I thought Dave Winfield, because Dave Winfield to me was a great player offensively and defensively. But I also remember that George Steinbrenner called him Mr. May. He did. Because Dave Winfield always had this, you know, was always known as a guy who as the season wore on wasn't considered a, a top echelon player by the end of the season. He had great numbers, he's a Hall of Fame player, but it's like when I had to, you know, make put somebody on the cutting cutting floor, he happened to make that because I think I had players that if you get into a World Series and I want to field a team, this is the team I want to put on the field. So And
0: and so for me, you know, another thing is just kind of the it factor. One of those things where you can't necessarily put your finger on but somebody just has it, you know. We've discussed I think in previous episodes about, you know, the the charisma that certain people have, you know, like a, a Johnny Cash was known as just having the charisma. He just had whatever it was. And I I kind of I probably fall into that a little bit for the type of players that I enjoy. So, like my current favorite player you know, for the Phillies is Bryce Harper. Okay, Bryce has that it factor. He is—he's a rock star as a player. He—he he loves the when the when the when he's out of town and he gets booed, he has no problems with that. He likes—he'll throw his arms up in the air. He celebrates the home run. I—I've always been drawn to those types of players.
1: You know, a a guy that dates back to Gen X that was very similar was a Manny Ramirez. Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't jeer him enough, and he would go out there and he would still. He would still destroy you. Right. Barry Bonds was the same way. You know, you couldn't you know, the fans you know, you would go to, to Philadelphia and the fans would just light him up out there in left field and he just was oblivious. Uh, you know, he had the um you know, he had he had the cojones to, to be able to stand out there and not care and then go up to the plate and hit a five hundred foot home run. And so.
0: that's a skill. That's as much a skill as the ability to run or to run and to throw. And it it, because especially baseball, among a lot of sports, there's so much of a mental aspect to it where I think if you're playing in the NFL, say you're running down on special teams, it's just read and react, Mm -hmm. right? But when you are up there at the plate and you have a lot of time to think about it and the pressure's on you, it's amazing how many guys will crack in the pressure situations
1: sure so yep so let's let's get into this all right so what i thought would be a good would be a fun little practice for us is to kind of go into each decade okay before we come up with our final list okay so let's kind of review the 70s a little bit and just kind of go through some of the some of the big names at the time and possibly who may have been considered for your list and just kind of go from there. So we'll go to the '70s, the '80s, and the '90s, and then you know you'll do your 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 player list, and then I'll do my player list. But okay. go, let's start with the '70s. Obviously, you know there were you know, there were a few teams of the decade. Early in the in the '70s, it was the A's, mm-hmm. the Oakland A's, where they won three consecutive World Series. It, it, it's interesting to me that uh, you know for the most part of Gen X, the repeat champions. Didn't really happen until towards the end with the uh, the Blue Jays and then the the Yankees. But in the '70s, you had the A's and then the Reds repeated mm-hmm. with the big Red Machine, and then you had the Yankees repeat, right? In you know towards the end of the decade, and then there was a little bit of a, a of a spell where there were just single winners up until the uh, Blue Jays win it in '92 and '93, and then of course you know the Yankees with Torrey and Jeter and all those guys at the end of Gen X. So Um, what are, who are some of the players that you kind of remember from, from the 1970s or maybe from those teams or, um, you know, like I said, you're, you kind of go back a little bit further than I, but one of my first memories of baseball is people talking about the big red machine. Well, that's, that's when I became
0: aware of baseball. So, you know, we, we, Scott and I didn't really grow up in a household where our father was that into sports
1: right he liked to play sports but he didn't necessarily follow sports right
0: so eventually i think because we were so interested in and he eventually became interested and in many ways i think her mom became more interested in baseball than what he did but that was mostly because we were into it and
1: our grandma mom's mom she was a phillies fan right and i do remember occasionally when we would go to visit her in the nursing home. If the Phillies were on, we will watch them on TV. Right. If they, you know, if there was a local broadcast.
0: So much like Scott, who said that he really kind of became aware of sports, as far as like you know more than just knowing your local team and a few players. For me, it probably was about 1976, and it was because all these kids at school kept talking about the Big Red Machine. Okay. You know, there were all these local kids who were fans of the Cincinnati Reds, and you know, of course, we talked about Johnny Bench. But then, you know, the other big name of the team would be Pete Rose. You know, they they had some, you know, a Davey Concepcion was was you know considered the the best defensive shortstop of his era, and they had Tony Perez, who was, you know, always considered Mister Clutch. You, you talk about guys that would do it in the in the playoffs. Right. Uh, there was a guy, some guy named Ken Griffey, not not <laughs> not the the Griffey that I think might be on my list later on, but you know, Ken Griffey Senior. Yeah. Was a big part of those teams.
1: Yeah, and the guy who. Was considered one of the top defensive center fielders in the National League. I wouldn't say the top because I'm sure you and I would agree on who we think is the top, and that would be Gary Maddox. But Cincinnati had a very good defensive center fielder in Cesar Geronimo.
0: They did. Now that that was the uh, the first team that I kind of remember watching, where they were still kind of the the World Series champions and, and the big team. So I'm probably about eight years old or so when I started following it, and then of course because I suddenly started getting into baseball, I would go to the library at school and I would get those those little books that I'm sure many of you out there used to get as well because, you know, we had to read. Mm-hmm. There was a requirement. So I would go out and I'd get every sports book that I could find. And there would be books about like the Oakland A's. And so I kind of thought it was kind of funny and interesting to see these guys like Raleigh Fingers with his big handlebar mustache and, you know, Reggie Jackson, they talk about the home run he hit over, hit out of Tiger Stadium. And there was that, you know, I became intrigued with that. Yeah. And so I would say I would, I never watched the Oakland A's back when they were in their heyday. Okay. But so many of the players that were on that team that ended up leaving and then going and playing for other teams, yeah. I knew who they were.
1: Sure. And they always, whenever those guys would make appearances on TV, when you would hear about Reggie Jackson, when you hear about Catfish Hunter, sure, when you hear about Joe Rudy, when you would hear about uh, Vita Blue, mm-hmm. you know, all these guys came from this one incredible team uh, with a crazy owner, and he was George Steinbrenner before George Steinbrenner, so uh, and Charlie O'Finley, Charlie yeah. yeah, yeah, he was, uh, you know. Paid, paid his players300 dollars to grow facial hair yeah because who was it the one guy showed up to uh, spring training it wasn't it wasn't Raleigh fingers it was Reggie I think okay showed up I think with like a like a goatee type facial hair and at the time m- most major leaguers when the season started they shaved mm-hmm. and there was, that actually went through in, in the 1960s you, you had a mustache and that was about it and not even a lot of players had a mustache back then. And Charlie Finley saw this and thought, "Man, that's that's really cool." So he actually made an offer to the guys on the team. That's where Raleigh Fingers got his handlebar mustache from, which he still has to this day. Right, was based on that three hundred dollar uh, payment from a, uh, um, athletic, A's owner Charlie Finley.
0: And you know, and that's the thing with back in the seventies. To me, my mind says characters. You know, they're, colorful, they're colorful characters. Yeah. There was a lot of of guys who seem to really be larger than life. And I, I don't I don't think they were marketing them that way because I don't know that there's a whole lot of marketing going on back then.
1: No, and uh, you know, that's back in the days when you had one national game of the week, and that was usually on a Saturday. I remember the NBC used to do the Saturday game of the week, which which I watched religiously. It was either Vin Scully or Tony Kubek or Bob Costas or Joe Garziola. Mm-hmm. And that was, for me... That was can't miss TV. I remember when I was stunned to
0: find out that Joe Gargiola was a good baseball player.
1: Yeah, because you didn't think about those guys as ball players. No. But Tony Kubek was a ball player And then it too. turned
0: out that he was the shortstop for the Yankees back, yeah. you know,
1: a decade, a couple decades before. And it just, it's, yeah. As, as a little kid, you don't really think about stuff like that. But you're right. I mean, they didn't get their job unless they had some type of a baseball background. And I just thought Joe Gargiola was kind of a goofball. Same. Uh, you know, he's trying to be funny. But it turns out, yeah, you're right. The guy was pretty darn. He had like a 15 year major league career, and that's not hard, or that's not very easy to do, right?
0: And so that was kind of where I would discover that going back with these books. So, anyways, that you know, you would have the characters of the A's. I remember the tail end of of the big red machine. I, I don't remember the '75 series with the Red Sox. Okay, of course. I feel like I've seen it because I've seen so many clips of it, and I've watched you know full on uh, you know, games
1: you know since then. But right. I didn't see it when it was on. Right, you feel like you've lived it because those those Red Sox teams were really good as well. It, it's it's a shame that the the Red Sox throughout history you know is especially through Gen X because they didn't win a World Series title from 1918 until 2004. So during the Gen X era, they came very close a couple of times. Mm-hmm particularly uh, 67 75 and probably the most uh, tragically 86 against the New York Mets but uh, that 75 series goes down as one of the all-time greats and so you have 75 they lose to the to the Reds in seven and then they had that huge lead in 1978 against the Yankees right and then I think the, they were up 14 games in, on August 1st. They were, had a 14-game lead, and then the Yankees end up catching them and winning in a one-game playoff. With the famous Bucky Dent home run. With the famous Bucky Dent home run. Right. Off of, do you remember the pitcher who hit uh, threw the uh, home run ball to Bucky Dent? Uh, for the Red Sox? Yeah. No, I don't. Well, it's interesting because he actually threw the final pitch for – the victory in Game Six of the World Series in '77 for the New York Yankees. I think it was Mike torres Okay. I think Mike torres went from the Yankees to the Red Sox and then gave up that home run to Bucky Dent.
0: But it, you know, you know, you talk about '75, the the Carlton Fisk home run where he's waving hmm. it fair. I may have have seen that five thousand times in my life.
1: Oh, but what a great baseball moment! But
0: that's why it's hard. It's like it seems like I've lived it, yeah. even though I know
1: I didn't see it. And that's one of the beautiful beautiful things about about baseball, I think, in that when it's done correctly, just like at what NFL films has done to the NFL, but baseball can be like in a way like like great art or poetry. And that Carlton Fisk home run in the seventy five World Series where he's standing there kind of bouncing down the first baseline, trying to wave that ball to go fair, to me that's like that's poetic. Yeah, you know, that's just that's just a great doesn't matter great sports moment that's just a great moment to see somebody that exhilarated and to see something like that and and all the fans in the stadium and i can you know the millions that were watching the game that's just a great moment right that, that, you know that's why we like to cover talk about things like this uh you know with gen x playback because those are moments in history that that will forever go on so
0: and you know for for me, one of the sparks for when I got into baseball was because of our cousin Jeff. Jeff, hi, uh, you know, if you're out there listening, Jeff, uh, you you were very influential as far as getting me into the sport. So as a, as a little kid, I was eight years old. Jeff's uh, what about two years older than what I am? So he we go over to his house sometimes, and he Jeff loved two things: horses and baseball. <laughs> <laughs> and he he was a he was a huge fan of both Tommy Hutton and Mike Schmidt.
1: I remember Tommy Hutton talking and, about Tommy and Hutton, really, a lot.
0: and really, and uh, really influenced me. So this would be like 1975ish, 1976, and then so I started kind of watching on my own. And then, with what, what um, they would do at our church was for the like the the youth group, they would rent the World Series highlight yes. tape, and I remember going along with our dad because uh, he was he was a leader and. Watching the 1976 highlight film from the Cincinnati Reds when when they beat the Yankees in the World Series,
1: and they did that every year. They did, they and, did, and we looked forward to it.
0: We did, and I just remember that that was kind of a launch for me. So I we see the '76 film, and it probably came out you know right around spring training. Mm-hmm. It's probably when they got when it was released, and then people could go out and rent it. And I just remember it kind of got me excited. In my mind, right now, I'm still seeing that highlight reel.
1: Now you you kind of glossed over it, but it's important to to remember for Gen Xers, it was a movie reel. It was yeah, an actual movie. We actually brought out the film projector and watched the real movie, uh, you know, the eight millimeter of of the of the I Have no
0: idea where they would have rented it yeah you know, who, who would have supplied it at, at the time, but it, you know we didn't get to see that many movies you know you, you had your what, four channels on television, and uh, this was a big deal. and I just remember that it really made an impression on me and I, 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 it's like I, I consciously decided I was going to start following baseball, which would then had been the 1977
1: season right,
0: which was right when uh, you know the the Yankees would have
1: had their little run that they had. and that was my first memory of baseball. My first memory of baseball is the 1977 World Series, when Reggie Jackson hit three home runs in mm-hmm. Game Six, three on three swings. And they came out with a candy bar, which I was one of my favorites because it. You know, I have to say, when Mike Schmidt is is my favorite Philly baseball player of all time, but he wasn't in the beginning. It was Reggie Jackson. I loved Reggie Jackson. The guy had, had something about him. It Probably because t- I was a little kid. I didn't – the players, he wasn't the most popular with certain players. Like, I, I think it was uh, – I, I can't remember which player it was, but they said, uh, there'll never be enough mustard in the world for that hot dog. I mean, he just was – he had such a self-confidence. I guess that's a, kind of a easy Ken. way to – a nice way to say it. But he was uh, – but – when the lights got the brightest reggie always seemed to find a way to uh, to put himself out there and do something spectacular whether it was hitting the roof in tiger stadium in the all-star game or hitting three home runs on three pitches in the, in game 6 of the 77 world series you know striking out against bob welch in game 5 in 78 but then coming back the next game and hitting a ball that almost comes goes out of tiger state or out of uh, dodger stadium uh, you know, he just kind of had that sizzle about him. I had a Reggie Jackson bat. Remember that Adirondack? I, I bat. do remember that. Yeah, I had that uh, until somebody stole it about ten years ago. I I had I had that bat, and um, it was my favorite. It was my favorite bat. But Reggie Jackson kind of brought me to baseball, and and okay. that Yankees team is the first my first memories of baseball. Our first baseball game went, went, was at the Phillies that year in 77. I was six years old, and, we, and I went with Dad. But um, it was the Yankees that really kind of elevated baseball to me, to like, hey, I, I, I got to see this. I want to watch this. And I think what helped, too,
0: is back then, World Series games were on during the day. Mm-hmm. So we, as little kids, got to see them. We, I mean, if, we may have had a 9 o'clock
1: bedtime, but we could see the games. I'm gonna say it wasn't until 19 around 1987 1988 that they that they decided to broadcast every World Series game at night because when the Phillies played the Royals in 1980 they still had earlier games sure because I remember watching the games out in Kansas City had mm-hmm. an earlier start they didn't they didn't go as late into the evening now when the Phillies won in game six it was after 11 o'clock at night but those games out in KC, those those were earlier games.
0: They they were so for me in 1978. Uh, I remember I you know I had a paper route, mm-hmm. and I always appreciated the fact that you know I'd come home from school and, and do the paper route. And because the World Series was on, Mom drove me to do the paper route, mm-hmm. and that was kind of a big deal. That we would rush to try to get done to get in because the games probably started like four. Okay, and so but yeah, and then you kind of close out the decade with. The Pittsburgh Pirates, you know, the We Are Family Pirates. They, you know, with the Willie Stargell, the uh, you know, the Dave the Cobra Parker, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of big names. John Candelaria, kind of flashy guys, Kent Tekulve. You know, the 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 arm almost underhand uh, relief pitcher who, uh, you know, kind of set a trend for every young boy that
1: age when he was out there playing catch. Well, they had, uh, you know, the Pirates were the pirates and the astros were were known for were having multiple multiple uniforms you remember that oh sure when we went we actually when we were kids and i think it was 1980 we went yeah. to went to cooperstown it was and there's the one room where it has all the uniforms in major league baseball and it's like every team was like two right two and then you go to the pirates and it was like five yeah you went to the astros and it was like three or four and it's like oh wow and, and those and those two teams happen to be very relevant you know, at that particular time in in the season, because we went during the baseball season. I think it was written July is when we went, and um, you know, both both teams they were they were both doing really well. Houston ends up winning their division uh, over the Dodgers in 1980, and the uh, Pirates came pretty close to getting up to the Phillies in uh, in that same year.
0: So I would say, at least for me, that the decade kind of opens and of the 70s opens and closes with a lot of flash
1: mm-hmm. yeah um any any players kind of stand out to you that that may have been part of your consideration from the 70s for for your list or you don't want to get to that just I, yet.
0: it's up to you you want me to get gonna, i do have some names i mean there. i'm
1: going to throw i'm going to throw some names out for you, you already people. saw one of them i put up on the screen <laughs> so i wanted to um i, I was going to throw some names out there in terms of offensive players and then i was going to go defensive and then pitching okay from from the 1970s so these are just some names that i jotted down because uh, some aren't names that you really think about a whole lot um but uh i'll I'll put them down there so catcher johnny bench Mm -hmm. on offense and I also had him defensively because johnny bench in in the 1970s won eight gold gloves which just goes to show how highly regarded he was um defensively there was another catcher i don't do you remember jim sunberg
0: absolutely i do texas rangers
1: and he uh he was the kind of the american league equivalent Mm -hmm. of of johnny bench in terms of defense
0: now yeah because he was the old school defense first light bat catcher
1: yeah uh first base Are, are there any first basemen that kind of stand out to you um in the 1970s in the
0: 1970s so i you know on my list my i'll name it my my first baseman's rod carew okay although in the 70s he was primarily a second baseman correct yeah but uh you know not on my list uh i I would put eddie murray out there okay um uh, everybody talks about willie mccovey a little before my time didn't you know i never really saw him play um so you know it's as far as the '70s, you know, Willie Stargell is playing first base. Okay, in in the '70s, although earlier in the decade he was an outfielder.
1: Yeah, he didn't move over to first base until I think '77, '78, which
0: was when we saw. him. Right. I, I never saw him play the outfield. I
1: always remember him as a first baseman. But um, a, a name that that people are trying to actually now get into the Hall of Fame. He recently passed away. Is Dick Allen? Okay. Dick Allen in the in from 1970 to 1975 was arguably considered the first the best first baseman in baseball
0: so here's one of the things and i do want to touch on this in this episode uh, because um you know of obviously in the gen x area we have there's issues with um performance uh drugs and you know some players like like barry bonds who is not in the hall of fame and you know you kind of questioned about you know their greatness and when you would have the traditional players and, and uh, that would have the long careers the 18 19 20 year careers they would change positions. Mm-hmm. And so they may have been an outfielder at one one time when they were when they were 25 30 35 years old and then at some point they would transition. Right. Example, I don't remember Karya Strimski playing left field. Though right. that's what he's known yeah. as. I only knew him playing first base. Sure. You know, I I you know the, the say that say there would be, you know, like Willie Sargil. People talk about that. He was a center fielder. Well, he was this chubby, you know, older guy, yeah. and I, I didn't really move around that quickly when we saw him
1: with the big windmill warm up. Right. Remember, he would do the. He would go around and around and around and around. It, it was always interesting to watch him. It was kind of comical. Um. Uh, so I said, you know, Dick Allen at at first base offensively. Remember George Scott? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely, uh, the the, uh, the big bopper, right? Big uh, a, a big,
1: big home run hitter. Played for the Yankees and the Red Sox. The Yankees and the Red Sox, and actually won six Gold Gloves in the nineteen seventies, which I never really thought about him as an offense or a defensive uh, baseball player. But I he just, was a DH when we saw him. But yeah, by the time we started following the game, his career is on the downside, and so downside in that
0: as you age. Those players, like I said, would shift positions. You know, in the American League, they could become a DH. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, in the olden days, you would shift
1: guys over to first base. And isn't it amazing how, like when I was putting my list together, you had you had players because there was such a distinct difference between leagues between the National League and the American League. It was rare to see guys jump from one league to the next. Usually, if they switched teams, they a lot of times they would stay in the same league. Whether they were in the American League, they, a lot of guys stayed in the American League. They might change teams in the, in the AL, uh-huh. but a lot of times they would, they would stay in, in their league. So, and, and this kind of stood out to me in in terms of like second base. You know, for me, being a National League fan, when I think of second base in the 70s, I think of Joe Morgan. Right. Um, but if you were somebody that knew anything about the American League, you would have probably said Rock Carew uh, for second base in the 1970s. So it's just like it's funny how, uh, you know, and, and I'll throw the example out in in the second base in the eighties. You know, in the National League you had Ryan Sandberg, in the American League you had Lou Whitaker. So it's just it was just kind of amazing, you know, interesting to me how you had guys that were arguably the best at their positions for almost the entire decade, mm-hmm. but one was very distinct in one league and one was very distinct in the other league. It's just I, I found that interesting because there's quite a few examples like that,
0: and you know let's face it, back then <clears throat> players stayed with the same team much more frequently sure you know
1: there was not nearly the movement that there is today okay now shortstop shortstop in the uh, in the 70s you think defense because sure. that was the emphasis back then mm-hmm. and um so i know you you had already mentioned dave concepcion right who was uh you know for the reds and the defensive name that came to mind for me was Mark Belanger mm-hmm. for the Orioles, the stick, because he was, um, uh, or was he was the blade? That was his nickname, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, he, was yeah I think he was the blade stick yeah. was G Michael. <clears throat> yeah. So Mark Belanger won eight gold gloves in the 1970s, but, but he was
0: not much of a hitter.
1: He was a terrible hitter, but he was not there for his hitting because the Orioles had a great offense back then. He had so many power hitters at, you know, at that time. You didn't need you needed somebody that could glove it up the middle, and I believe it was when I was, remember the Orioles in the seventies. It was Belanger at short, Rich Dower at second base, and they were solid up the middle. And then you even had uh, Paul Blair towards the end of his career was with Baltimore, and he was a Gold Glove center fielder. So Rick Dempsey catching, uh, you know, up the middle, the Orioles were as good as anybody.
0: And that's why I think my list, you know, is going to skew a little more defensively because that was the era. I mean right. the the way that i was brought up as a kid you know following sports baseball in the 70s was your catcher shortstop second baseman center fielder you the priority was on defense sure and it it changed later on i would say maybe mid to late 80s you started to see some guys out there um you know who might have been just offensive players playing some of those positions but for the most part you tried to I mean if if it, if all things were equal you you probably sided with defense and that was true with most teams.
1: If you had to pick an offensive shortstop from the 70s does anybody really come to mind because I was just going off straight off the numbers. Do you remember Toby Harrah? Yeah, for the Indians. Yeah. Yeah. He was uh, in, you know just looking at numbers because the Silver Slugger wasn't in existence yet at that point. The Silver Slugger award didn't start until officially until 1980. So a lot of the 1970s stats are kind of like you're just going, who had the most hits? Who had the most home runs during the decade? Um, you know, Toby Harrah had the most hits and home runs at the shortstop position than anybody else. So you could arguably say he was the best offensive shortstop of the 1970s. Um, but like you said, when when we go back and think about short the shortstop position, a lot of times it kind of gravitates more towards defense because it was such an important position out on out on the field.
0: And I still feel that way. I I think that it um, is probably should be, you know, more emphasis placed on defense, especially for the shortstop, just because if you can't have somebody that can close out a game with a ground ball to short and is devastating to a team and a pitching staff. So I still think that's the way to go. You know, I was thinking there's there weren't a lot of great offensive shortstops, Uh, like a guy like a Roy Smalley. Remember him for the sure. twins, yeah. And then he, he it was it was like George Steinbrenner. If somebody did well against the Yankees, he would go out <laughs> and get them. And then he brings Roy Smiley over to the Yankees.
1: Well, because the shortstop position was so hard, a lot of times these shortstops would have like maybe one great year, where they would they would uh, put up big offensive numbers, but it would usually take a toll on them.
0: Which you would get a Bucky Dent, right? And then also for the Phillies, you had a Larry Boa, who was. Much more a defensive player than an offensive player. And he was a perennial all-star.
1: Right. Uh, wasn't Freddy Patek, wasn't he a shortstop? Kansas City. And he was, I think, the smallest player in, in mm-hmm. majors at the time. I think he was like 5'3 or 5'4. S- something like it, yeah. Yeah. And uh, But again, another light hitting, uh, but very important because he could play the position defensively. Larry Boa started out his career the same way, known as a light hitter, but very good defensively. A matter of fact, uh, Boa just recently br- told the story about how angry he was at Gene Mauk, who was the Phillies manager at the time, because Mauk was ripping, making fun of Boa in the batting cage when he was a young player. And he said in a very loud voice behind the batting cage, so that Boa could hear him, as he turned to one of his coaches and he said, "I can see him hit, but I can't hear him," meaning he had no bats, right. no bat power. And Boas, Bo, <laughs> you know. Sixty years later, Bo is still bitter about it, but which is which is funny. But you know, Larry Boa eventually did turn himself into a very serviceable, uh, competent major league batter.
0: I tell uh, you, I tell you who I as I'm thinking about it, who is probably the best offensive shortstop that I remember in the '70s was Gary Templeton.
1: Very talented, yeah, yeah. And he had, he, I think, he was the first one of the because he was a switch hitter. Switch hitter for St. Louis and, and they end up the trading they traded him straight up for Ozzy Smith because he was a pain in the butt. Who is on my list, <laughs> by the way. Um, but Gary Templeton for St. Louis did something unbelievably uh rare in that he got over 100 hits from each side of the plate in one season, which is inc- you know, mm-hmm. when you think about it uh I don't know if it's I don't know if it's been done since, to be honest with you. I don't because there aren't that many switch hitters out there that that get 200 hits in a season. And he was a good uh, defensive shortstop, but a
0: much better offensive. And so he's probably one of the few that I can remember from that era where it definitely leaned more offense.
1: Okay. All right. Well, let's go to third base. Uh, I think third base in the 1970s for us is a pretty easy one. Uh, you know, uh, Philadelphia Phillies, Mike Schmidt, uh, was the first name that pops in, into my head as far as offense goes. He had the most home runs for his position in the, uh, in the 1970s. As well as the 1980s, um, but Schmidt for offense, he did win four Gold Gloves. So obviously, Schmidt was a premier defensive third baseman. But I think four Gold it, Gloves in the 70s. In the 70s, yeah. Right. But in in the 70s, the uh, the defensive honor, I think I still think has to go to Brooks Robinson, even though I remember nothing about Brooks Robinson. Never saw player. him play. Uh, he did win six Gold Gloves in the 1970s alone. Still holds the record for most for a third baseman with 16. Um, but, again, this is one of those players that you have to look back and just see the time capsule of what Brooks Robinson could do defensively. Orioles fans will tell you that he's the best third baseman of all time. And he turned out to be a very dependable clutch uh, hitter in his career, but never put up the big numbers like Schmidt did. Uh, once Schmidt got going around 1974 cuz in 1973 uh he's he's finished with a batting average under 200 but was able to turn it around uh and almost improve his average in 100 points in one year
0: and i would say for many years that was always the the take was a, in the American League it was Brooks Robinson you know was the was the greatest third baseman in, in Schmidt in the National League uh there were a lot of good third basemen at from that time you know I, yeah. a, a young George Brett was coming up he was uh he obviously was was a special player i remember you know seeing all those yankee games and craig nettles you know he was a guy who could hit a clutch home run
1: Greg nettles was and buddy bell but buddy bell the rangers buddy bell was a perennial gold glove winner in the american league he uh, i think he finished with eight gold gloves in his career and like you said Greg nettles was also known for being able to make the great defensive plays at third base, as well as being a clutch hitter, so yeah, there was there's some good names uh, at you know third base in the 1970s. Kenny Reitz, <laughs> St. Louis, <laughs> St. Louis, yeah, yeah. Uh, couldn't run a lick. No, he was one of the. They always commented about how slow he was. How about Ron Say? Ron Say is a guy that uh, you're right. Ron Say had a very dependable career, and um, he was. Known as a very gruff teammate, mm-hmm. you know, somebody that he was just there. He was the penguin. He was the penguin. He was about winning. He was about going there and doing his job. He wasn't going to make friends with anybody. I think it was Don Sutton or Tommy John made the comment one time. He's like, um, you know, you walk past his locker and you say, you know, hey penguin, how you doing? And he, and they said if you got a grunt, that means that things are good. <laughs> You know, because he wasn't a man of, of many words. And he was
0: called the Penguin because he kind of waddled when he walked.
1: Yeah, and, and he kind of wore that as a badge of honor because he got that nickname in the minor leagues because it was meant as a, as a way of saying, this guy doesn't have the athleticism necessary to get to the major leagues. Because he had these huge legs. Yeah, he was a thickly built guy. And, you know, that, that Dodgers team of the 1970s, you had that wonderful, and I'll say wonderful now, I hated them back then. But yet, Say at third, Bill Russell at short, Davey Lopes at second base, Steve Garvey at first base. And those guys ended up being staying together for, was, was it longer than 10 years? It, it was, was a it long was a, time. It was at least a decade. Those guys played day in and day out. Uh, you know, Garvey, perennial all-star, won a couple of gold gloves at first base. Uh, Davey Lopes um, was the player you loved to hate if he wasn't on your team. I loved him as the Phillies' first base coach mm-hmm. when the Phillies had him. Bill Russell, just a very quiet, dependable player. He always a defensive uh, shortstop. But Bill Russell had a way. It seemed like every time the Dodgers would beat the Phillies in the playoffs, Bill Russell was somehow involved in it. He just seemed to have a way of coming up when you needed him. And it wasn't like the bigger names on the team like Garvey or Reggie Smith, who I'm going to talk about here in a second, or Dusty Baker who played for the Dodgers back then. It was usually like Bill Russell, Davey Lopes. You know, Davey Lopes was the guy that was involved in that very infamous play for Phillies fans. He hits a line drive that caroms off of Mike Schmidt's glove. Larry Boa picks it up, barehand, rifles, the ball to first base. The replay clearly shows that he's out. He's called safe, ends up scoring and the Phillies lose that game. So that was 1978, 77. Was it 77? Yeah. Okay. Um, that was the Burt Hooten game I think where the fans, 78
0: was the one where Maddox drops the ball in the sun. That's right. Yeah.
1: So 77 would have been, yeah, that was the Burt Hooten game where the fans basically heckled Burt Hooten into never throwing a strike and having to leave the game in like the first inning. Mm-hmm. Um anyway. So uh, but that was the Dodgers and and we talked about Bill Russell and and you mentioned Ron Say at third base, Steve Garvey at first base. Uh that wasn't uncommon for teams in the 1970s, like you said, to have players that were around teammates for that were together for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And we just talked about the Dodgers, how they were, you know, together as an infield for more than you know, ten seasons.
0: Now you started to see movement in the 70s with free agency.
1: That really changed things, and,
0: and it's it's the beginning of it. So I remember, you know, being a kid and getting a baseball card, and you would look at someone like Carl Yastrzemski, mm-hmm. and you would see. 18 years all red sox Mm -hmm. and that was not uncommon i you know there a lot of ways for a baseball fan that's how you learned your history of the game you know i talked about the little books you would get but Mm -hmm. you would also get these the baseball cards and study them
1: yeah you memorize the stats so at least i did yeah uh you know you would you would want to uh know that you know mike schmidt hit 38 home runs in 1974 or that he hit 45 home runs in 1979 or that he only hit 21 home runs in 1978. You know little things like that, and uh, you know you would study your favorite players, and that's why you could always tell the kids who were real baseball fans that had baseball cards because they're usually worn out and in bad shape, mm-hmm. <laughs> because they, they, you know you, you you carried them with you. That that was you know you wanted to show them to your friends like sure. hey, I got you know you've got it wrapped in a rubber band four times that <laughs> it has the sides caving in. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's the stuff that we really that we really enjoyed. So um but yeah, you're right. It it was rare for you to see a guy who changed teams numerous times. But that did start to happen in the seventies, but I, I don't you
0: know, obviously the rules wor- weren't what they are now, so there wasn't nearly as much movement. And you know, the you don't have the you know the salary cap issues right. that you do now where sometimes you may want to keep a team together. But you know, financially, you might not be able to. And back then, it it just was different financial time. In that, I think that contributed a lot to keeping teams together. Um, but if you got a chemistry, you know, kind of like you just said with the Dodgers, I think teams prioritize that, right? And they they wanted to hold on to their core.
1: Sure. Um, all right. So I'll, I'm going to throw out some outfield names for you. I'll throw out six names. First offense, and then defense. Uh, offensively in 1970s, I have Willie Stargill Okay. I have Reggie Smith mm-hmm. and I have Reggie Jackson. Okay. Defensively, I have Cesar Geronimo. I have Paul Blair and I have Gary Maddox. Uh, those are the, those are probably three of the names that, that stood out to me, uh, in terms of numbers offensively and in terms of defensive gold gloves, uh, on the other side.
0: There's only one defensive player I think I would add to that and that would be Dwight Dewey Evans.
1: You know, uh, Dwight Evans was a guy who kind of came around in the middle of the '70s. He kind of came around just around Jim Rice, Fred Lynn, mm-hmm. those guys. They more towards the middle of the decade, and uh, you know, versus a guy like a Paul Blair, who was still considered an exceptional defender, but was at the uh, but was still winning Gold Gloves towards the end of his career. Um, Dw- Dwight Evans was somebody I did certainly consider because he was known as a premier right fielder. Right. Uh, you know, he had he had a, a plus arm, had a very good arm, uh, but it was he was known for his accuracy and just for being the guy who never missed the throw he was supposed to make. I always remember them, the commentators saying about how accurate of an arm Dwight Evans was. Like when he was throwing a guy out, the throw was on the money. You know, if, if he beat him... A lot of times it did because he had a good arm. But the throw was always right on, right where it needed to be. And, 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 and
0: maybe that's where I got it from listening to the commentators because right. they probably influenced me when I was young. But okay. I just remember in my mind thinking, oh, that's the best defensive right fielder in baseball.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and for us, we had the pleasure of watching Gary Maddox, mm-hmm. where uh, I'm not sure. It might have been Ralph Kiner. I'm not sure he he if, if he took credit for it or not. But somebody was made the comment out there that um, you know two thirds of the earth is covered with water, and the other third is covered by Gary Maddox because he was just such an unbelievable patrolman out there in center field. Uh, and it's not so much Gary Maddox could run, you know, he had great speed, but he wasn't a blazer. He wasn't a Ricky Henderson. He, when he watched Gary Maddox go out there and play it looked like he was always gliding to the ball but yet he always got there mm-hmm. and that was it was such a and also what I remember most about Gary Maddox was how shallow he played like you watch the baseball players today and how a lot of times they're playing you know maybe 10 12 feet in front of the warning track and Gary Maddox was playing in the middle of center field and he still had the ability to read the ball well enough that he could go out there and catch a ball at the fence he if had he had those to. He had
0: really long legs, and he could cover a lot of ground, which allowed you to put uh, you know, players around him on the corners, like a Greg Luzinski, who wasn't a great defensive player, and that you could kind of you know, have Maddox cover a lot of the ground that you normally would have a left fielder cover.
1: Yeah, and, and Paul Owens, the former general manager of the Phillies, in the book that, uh, about the Phillies called You Can't Lose Them All, which is about the nineteen eighty World Series team, but when Pope was talking about Gary Maddox, that he said uh, Danny Ozark and then later Dallas Green was able to cheat Gary Maddox into left center field after he made the trade for Bake McBride, mm-hmm. because Bake McBride was also a guy who could cover a lot of ground, was a very good defensive player, so he had he obviously had two great outfielders uh, defensively on in. Maddox was able to cheat over and kind of help out Lazinsky because he was so limited with his range out in left field.
0: Right, right. So I I I agree with every name you put out there. Well, thank you.
1: Pitchers. Um so I, I you know, before we went on the air, I, I told you I was I was looking around on a website and I actually came up I came across a guy who had a list of the top pitchers of the nineteen seventies and I'll I'll read off his list. Okay. Now a lot of it I, I do agree with. But there's, we're going to talk about the name that was left off the list. So starting pitchers, uh, this person had Tom Seaver, uh-huh. Burt Levin, Gaylord Perry, Ron Guidry, and Jim Palmer. Where the deuce is Steve Carlton? Right. I mean, you could even, you know, Ron Guidry was great in the seventies. For he was he was good for one year. He was great for a second year. Jim Palmer, I don't deny. Jim Palmer was was the assassin of the Orioles' rotation. Sure,
0: you know, 300-game winner, Hall of Famer.
1: Tom Seaver, same thing. Yep. Um, You know, Gaylord Perry did make it to the Hall of Fame, but really his best years were probably in the late 60s. Um, You know, no Steve Carlton, no Fergie Jenkins, although Fergie Jenkins, again, probably had his best years in the late 60s. but But I think it was... 70, 71, 72, 73, I think he won 20 games each one of these years for awful Cubs teams. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was surprised to see Burt Lilevin on that list. I was very surprised to see Ron Guidry because his career really didn't start until towards the end of the 70s.
0: I think that's a case of the Yankee bias coming into play. and You, know, you hear that with the Hall of Fame, that if a player performs with the Yankees, there's, you know, they uh, it it does kind of um, they get a bit of an unfair advantage and they're they're pushed up on a list more so than what some other players might be. I you know Gidry was spectacular for one year. Yeah, I mean he was he was the best pitcher in baseball. Twenty five and three in yeah. nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, but that was I mean he had some other good years, but that was you know it's, it's hard to believe that they kind of based it on one year. For me, if you're going to take a Yankee from the seventies, I'm going to go Catfish
1: Hunter. Right, and, and in particular because he's a Hall of Famer. Gidry's mm-hmm. not in the Hall of Fame. Catfish Hunter won, I think, 20 games five times in the 1970s. Uh, three of them with the Yankees and I think two with, or no, three with the A's and I believe two with the Yankees. So uh, yeah, Catfish Hunter, was he, he was the big fish in free agency. He was the first real big free agent mm-hmm. once free agency became a thing. And George Steinbrenner really sort of changed baseball by signing Catfish Hunter, and then later Reggie Jackson, and then you know he kind of kind of turned the turned the game on its ear in a way because of the new way of, of getting players on your team. Uh, but yeah, I was I was very surprised to see some of those names. the The relief pitchers didn't really shock me as much: Bruce Sutter, Jim Kern, and Raleigh Fingers. Okay, uh, You good. know, I Jim Kern ahead. was a really good closer. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, he was he was somebody with Texas that, unfortunately for him, was great until he turned about 32, 33. I think he had an arm injury. And back in those days when you had an arm injury, you're pretty much done. So I think he had done something to his shoulder or his elbow and was kind of out of baseball in a year. But uh, up until like 1979, he was – you could argue that him and Bruce Suter were the two best uh, – belief men in major league baseball especially bruce
0: sitter I mean, uh, bruce sitter who is a local uh you know uh, uh, p- uh, person from this area uh, probably about what 15 minutes from where we are right now is where he grew up and uh, hall of famer it just the uh, kind of the i don't say he's the originator of the uh, split finger fastball but he certainly was the guy that put it on the map
1: yeah he's the one that drew it to prominence and one of the one of the omissions to this list was somebody that we as Phillies fans dealt with a lot was Kent Tekulve. Mm-hmm. You mentioned his name earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, submarine pitcher, really the first of his kind. I, I don't ever remember seeing anybody like him before. Dan Quisenberry came shortly after, but Taculvey was was the first guy, and he was nasty. He was. He had a nasty. He ended up pitching for the Phillies for four seasons, uh, which I thought was was kind of interesting. Right. Uh, towards the end of his career and he was a very serviceable relief pitcher for the Phillies at the very end but uh you know when he was with the when he was with the Pirates and he got a late start in his major league career but by the time he got up there uh he was a filthy pitcher to have to deal with in the ninth inning
0: and you know of course then you had Raleigh Fingers who mm-hmm. was also another uh, relief pitcher that was pretty dominant in that era uh, Dennis Eckersley uh eventually becomes a great reliever right at
1: this point he's still a starter but in
0: this 1970s he's one of the better starting pitchers yeah i could have seen him on the list before maybe some uh, like you know i know eckersley probably had more of a hall of fame type career when he was a relief pitcher but in like that 1975-76 era he was pretty dominant okay
1: all right so that's kind of our uh reminiscing about the 1970s let's Let's jump into the 1980s because now you and I are full-fledged baseball fans. Mm-hmm. So I think going forward for us, we're we're really able to see these players right at that particular moment. So for me, um, for, there's three names in catching that that stand out to me: Bob Boone, mm-hmm. uh, Gary Carter, okay. Lance Parrish. Um, any other names that you can think of at, at the catcher position? You know, once again,
0: that was kind of a, of a position back then where you would have a lot of good defensive players. Mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, like a guy like a Jody Davis from the Cubs. Right. You know, he was he, he was the type of player that they would always say at any other position, he doesn't make the major leagues. But right. But he was such a good defensive catcher.
1: And he ended up winning a gold glove in a very tough, you know, tough market there uh, to try and go up against because – Towards the end, um, there was Benito Santiago. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a rookie in 1987. The guy who was kind of, sort of considered the best defensive catcher in the middle of the decade was Tony Pena with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Oh, that's true. Yeah, he won three straight Gold Gloves. Uh, but overall, um, the best catcher in the National League, for my money, was Gary Carter. Oh, yeah. Because because he was hands down the, uh, offensively and defensively. You know, you look back at uh, as, a, as a kid when you're following a team and you have Gary Carter, the rival. Mm-hmm. You don't really appreciate Gary Carter, the player, and what he actually accomplished. And Gary Carter was a very accomplished player. Oh, I hated Gary Carter. Yeah.
0: You know, he, he went from the Expos, you know, who were the Phillies' rival back in the early 80s, and then he goes to the Mets. And, you know, the Mets weren't very good for most of our, you know, uh, our lives as we were growing up. And then suddenly they got, they got a whole bunch of uh, players in and then they to have continued today. I think to be the, the most bitter rival for the Phillies. And I just couldn't stand Gary Carter. I mean, right. the kid, I mean, I couldn't stand him. And, but much like Larry Bird kind of, when they're done playing, I look back and I was like, yeah, that was, that was a great player.
1: Gary Carter was clutch. Yeah. And Steve Carlton said that Gary Carter was one of the two batters that, killed him like always knew what carlton was going to throw and i think i think gary carter either is number one or number two in home runs that uh, steve carlton gave up to one single player so here's another name how about mike Socha? very you know very also known as a super defensive catcher but
0: he could swing the bat a little bit
1: he could you know he had he had a few offensive numbers um not known as a power hitter you You would
0: get you would get Players like that now associated with the Dodgers later on, but prior to that was Steve Yeager.
1: Steve Yeager and Joe Ferguson. Mm -hmm. They actually split time. Steve Yeager was the catcher who invented the throw protector. uh, And he also played Pepper in Major League as the assistant baseball coach, the the assistant coach. Um, But that was Steve Yeager, yeah. It was a defensive position. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ron Hassey, a guy Mm -hmm. who had a very long career with the A's and the Yankees and the Indians. Uh, you know, those guys were in the league because they were good defensively. Rick Dempsey was a great defensive catcher. Um, Of
0: course that, you know, Carlton Fisk did go from the seventies into the eighties. Of course, in the eighties, he's with the Chicago white Sox.
1: Correct. Yeah. Uh, But I don't, he was always known as for me, I always thought of Carlton Fisk more offensively than Mm -hmm. defensively. Right. Uh, Lance Parrish. He was a good player. He was a good player for the Tigers. (laughs) The Phillies got him in 1987. Matter of fact, he was the only free agent signed in 1987, because the owners were found guilty of collusion, and there was one owner that stepped out of the, out of the, uh, the alliance. That being Bill Giles of the Phillies, signed Lance Parrish to this mega deal, and they made such a big deal about him. And the guy was. In it back in a time when baseball players weren't necessarily worried about their how they looked physically, you know they were still worried. You know, hitting and mm-hmm. uh, Lance Parrish was a specimen. The guy looked like a bodybuilder up there, and to the point where there was concern. I remember Paul Owen saying, "Is he too big? Is he too muscular?" Because the guy was you know he's six foot three, uh, you know, uh, built like Arnold Schwarzenegger standing up there. He had his he had his shirts tailored. So that they would show his biceps, and he was just not what the Phillies were had to hope for. He was such a disappointment. He was terrible. Yeah, he wasn't terrible, mm-hmm. but when when you spend that much money and you have these other catchers like the Ron Hassies of the world, the Terry Steinbachs that are putting up better numbers than a guy you spent millions of dollars for, it's you're right. It's a disappointment.
0: And he was considered the best all around catcher in the game
1: at that particular time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but the other guy that I want to talk about is, is Bob Boone. Okay. Now, not Alan Ashby? Nope, not Alan Ashby. Uh, he would play for the Astros, and we don't like the Astros. Um, no, but Bob Boone should be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion, because had there not been Johnny Bench, those gold gloves in the 1970s would have gone to Boone, and then that would have put him, instead of having him with uh, six career gold gloves, it probably would have put him upwards in the 12 to 13 range, which uh, it would be good enough for a catcher to qualify to be in the Hall of Fame. And Booney was a good enough player offensively that I think, it, but he was a brilliant defensive catcher.
0: He's he's the rare catcher that had two separate careers. He really did. You know, he, he basically had a decade with the Phillies and then a decade with the Angels.
1: Yeah. And a good decade as a as a catcher. And remember the Phillies when the Phillies turned their back on him essentially after the 1980 season. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was considered like at the end of his career, right? Because he got hurt in in uh, right before 1980. Played hurt throughout the season. Phillies are like, okay, you know, hey, good luck with you, best of luck. And then he goes on and wins uh, five Gold Gloves with the Angels in in the 1980s, which is. And I think the last one he won was like at the age of 40. Can you imagine catching 130 games at the age of 40 in the major leagues? I mean, they don't even do that now, and the guys are 20-something years old. Right. And yet he he uh, he played until he was 42 years old. And that and I think when he retired, now Fisk broke the record uh, a year later, but when Boone retired, he caught the most number of games at the catcher position in anybody in major league history. Which is why I think, you know, Booney should deserve to get a get a nod and go to Cooperstown.
0: I I'm sure his offense is probably the reason why he hasn't made it so far. Because he was he was okay. He, he
1: was, was good. A, he was a good hitter. He was solid. You know, he was you could argue and say he was the Phillies' best hitter in the World Series in nineteen eighty.
0: He was he was that player that could get the occasional clutch hit, but he certainly didn't put up big numbers.
1: He wasn't a power guy, but um, I remember uh, 1980, second to last game of the season, the Phillies are need to clinch. They're losing by a run in the ninth inning. There's two outs, two strikes. Bob Boone's at the plate, and he singles in the tying run, sends it to extra innings. And, of course, Mike Schmidt gets the heroics for hitting the extra inning home run off Stan Bonson an mm-hmm. inning later. But the guy who kept the game alive was Bob Boone. And, you know, Booney was clutch when you needed him to be. Right. No, I,
0: I was always a, a huge Bob Boone fan. In fact, I was – as a little kid, I was pretty upset when he was traded, and you know that's when they brought in Bo Diaz, right? Who actually was decent for them, but yeah, no Boone definitely went on to have a, a quite illustrious career, and also had a couple sons who you know have had uh, you know big major league careers as well.
1: Two all stars at one point, mm-hmm. Brett and Aaron. All right, first base. I'm gonna I'm gonna toss four names at you. Okay, okay. Uh, Cecil Cooper. Yep. Dom Addingley. Yep. Will Clark. Yep. And Keith Hernandez. Okay. All right. Everyone
0: was up for consideration.
1: I know you. You always you always thought very highly of Keith Hernandez. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a just a wizard, uh, defensive first baseman. Mm-hmm. Maybe the smoothest first baseman I can say I've ever watched. Just a guy who just made the – he made that position look effortless. And I, I I honestly don't ever remember ball getting past him. Like you know he always seemed to be able to dig out any throw that came his way. And now the Cardinals were a good defensive team, mm-hmm. so there wasn't a whole lot of balls tossed in the dirt. But uh, and then later on with the Mets, it's one thing uh, to do with one team, but he did it throughout his whole career. He, he, to me, he, him and Don Mattingly may be the two best defensive first basemen I can remember seeing him like in person.
0: I've never seen anyone better than those two defensively, and for me, Keith Hernandez is defensively the prototype of which. Every other first baseman is measured. Not only was he great at, at digging balls out of the dirt, like you said, but he was incredible, uh, had, had a great arm, and he was he was great on the relays. And the way he would, he could charge from first base on a bunt and throw a guy out at third base or and whip the ball to second. He, he, was, he was daring with his arm, much like a lot of catchers would be. And he, he was a gun, and he had a gun and he wasn't afraid to use it, and it was so rare that you ever saw him make a mistake.
1: He reminded me of of the kind of guy that he knew how to use his bullets when he had to mm-hmm. and uh, Bill Conlin, a sports writer for the that covered the Phillies for many years, said that about Schmidt. He said, you know mike Schmidt when he knew that the runner wasn't coming out of, out of the batter's box hard, Schmidt wasn't going to show off his arm strength. he was going to lob the ball over there. But when you needed it, it was there. And Keith Hernandez was the same type of player. Again, foot speed, not the fastest guy in the world. He's not gonna win many foot races. But he had such an instinct and a twitch to the ball. And like you said, he he never seemed to make the wrong throw. Like if he if he had to if he had to go to a spot, if he had to go to third base, if he had to go home, he never seemed to be in the wrong position on the field, and he was one of the better clutch hitters of his time. Mm-hmm. He
0: was. He it if he had more power and I I think based on the era in which he played, the physique wasn't, wasn't really, uh, you know, you talk about, uh, well, I, you know, we're talking about guys the same era, but you know, Keith Hernandez was not somebody like a Lance Parrish who got, you know, jacked up and, you know, did it, did it hurt him because he didn't hit for more power? Maybe, but also he, he, he was a perennial 300 hitter mm-hmm. and he was, he was a clutch hitter and on a lot of teams with, with, very good players around him. He usually hit third in the lineup.
1: Right. And fans think of 1979. They think of the Pittsburgh Pirates. They think of We Are Family. They think of Willie Stargell. Mm-hmm. Uh, Willie Stargell actually won the co-MVP in 1979, which I don't know if it's ever been done before or since. But he shared that award with Keith Hernandez. They tied. He did, yeah. So the, Keith Hernandez won the batting title that year. Uh, but he was an exceptional hitter, great contact hitter. And he had extra base power. He kinda in a way, although they had very different approaches to the plate, very reminiscent of a Pete Rose, because Pete Rose could slam the ball Pete Rose could hit the ball harder than anybody. It's just that Pete didn't want to hit it with a loft on it. He wanted to hit these pure line drives. He was a gaps hitter. Right. And Hernandez in many cases was the same. Yeah, you know, they they drilled the ball into these gaps and they had a ton of doubles. And they, they if you looked at their slugging percentage, it was high but it just wasn't because of home runs.
0: you know Hernandez had a beautiful swing. You know, he he was someone that, you know, I gave the style points to. You know, when I said that kind of influences, you know, my list in a way, you know, Keith Hernandez is somebody that he just looked smooth. He looked cool when he was out there and I part of what I like about athletics is when you see an any athlete that just has this this incredible body control about them, it's there's just some something that's like beautiful to watch. When you know, you could be watching the Olympics, and, and you know, it Simone Biles. Mm-hmm. I, I was watching her when she was doing it was just amazing, and I, I I felt like honored that I got to see history and see someone that accomplished. Well, I felt the same way watching a Keith Hernandez at first or Mike Schmidt at third. They were almost like ballet dancers out there. How they could how they could feel the ball.
1: Yeah, well, you know, like I said. You watch certain things happen, and in a way, it is kind of like great poetry. It's like great music. You'll be able to watch somebody master their position. And uh, Keith Hernandez, uh, and I'm going to just jump right into Mattingly. Um, Don Mattingly was the same type of player, even though he had the offense to go along with the defense. He was such a complete player. Mm -hmm. Don Mattingly, um, at the time, was my second favorite baseball player of all time. Even though he didn't play for the Phillies, he played for the Yankees. But this guy was incredibly fun to watch. And I used to specifically go with my friends down to Baltimore because even though I wasn't an Orioles fan, I used to go down there when the Yankees would come into town just so just so I could watch him play live. It's a
0: shame that Don Mattingly had the injuries, had the back injury, where he just... He went from having those few brilliant years. What, what, what was his run, about seven years or so, eight years?
1: It was a little, yeah, because it goes back to 1983. So we're talking almost 10 years. There's a possibility that Mattingly may get into the Hall of Fame at some point. I still think if he would have had about two more years, I think he would have had the credentials necessary to get into Cooperstown. But uh, there's a stretch from about 1984 to, to 1987 where he was as good as anybody in baseball
0: well you know i I pulled up his stats and so in 1984 when he was 23 he had 207 hits he had 44 doubles 110 rbis 23 home runs and hit 343 so he leads the league in hits leads the league in doubles leads the league in batting average so his run is from 84 up until let's say 89 because he was an all-star for those years it was Batting average was 343, 324, 352, 327, 311, um, and then in 89, he's 303. But with that, it was power. So he also was hitting 23 home runs, 35 home runs, 31, 30. Uh, Then he kind of, you could see the back injury might have come into play. He drops down to 18 and 23. And then he never really gets too much higher than maybe there was one year in 93. Three, he had 17 but for the most part he went he had that that stretch where he was you know almost like Pete Rose was where he was close to 200 hits every year he was getting 100 RBIs every year and he's hitting not just 300 but he's hitting well above 300.
1: Yeah we're talking we're talking big numbers I think Ricky Henderson and Mattingly when they were teammates which year did he have 150 some RBIs? uh or 145 that was in uh, 1985 1985 so i think that was the year 145 that that, uh ricky henderson scored like 150 runs in one season and a lot of times it was because he was getting knocked in by mattingly and that was that was a really good offensive yankees team but the guy the guy who ran that lineup was mattingly and that was a team that had winfield on it ricky henderson uh, the best hitter on the team was Don Mattingly.
0: And, you know, I made a comment earlier about, you know, being a Bryce Harper fan. And I, you know, I made, I'd said just recently to someone that, I, you know, he's a Hall of Famer. You know, it's, it's, you're, I'm, you know, watching a Hall of Famer play. But I thought the same thing about Mattingly at mm-hmm. the time. It's like you felt, you know, the privilege, as I said, when you get to see special athletes, it's like I get to experience it. I didn't get to experience Babe Ruth, I didn't get to see Ted Williams. I was like, ah, oh, but I'm getting to see this Hall of Famer in the prime of their career. And unfortunately for Mattingly, he just had the injuries that just pulled down what was
1: kind of a monumental career that was happening. Yeah. And there's two names that I want to point out, one at the beginning of the 80s, the other one at the end of the 80s, that were really uh, good in their own rights. One from the American League, that being Cecil Cooper. Mm -hmm. The other one being Will Clark with the Giants. Cecil Cooper was on a Milwaukee Brewers team that at the time was in the American League. And you and I were quasi Brewers fans oh, I, because they were fun to watch. Harvey's Wallbangers, that was a fun team. And you know, Cecil Cooper was the linchpin of that lineup. He hit third. You had you had Gorman Thomas, this kind of heavy-set center fielder that was, you know, hitting dingers. Ben Ogilvy mm-hmm. was on that team. Uh, what was that? Jim Gantner, Robin Yao, Paul Molitor. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Ted Simmons Ted Simmons was the catcher on that team. Raleigh Fingers was on that team. Uh, but probably was it, Ar- was it
0: Pete Vukovich, was he on that team? Pete Vukovich was. Yeah. yeah,
1: he won the Cy Young in 82. But uh, you know, whereas I think the two best hitters, the pure hitters were Robin Yount and Paul Molitor. both guys made it to the Hall of Fame. But the guy who who anchored that lineup, hit batting fourth, was Cecil Cooper. And he did lead the league in RBIs in nineteen eighty. And was a guy that had surprising power, but he was known as a guy that was a clutch hitter, and he could get the runs in when he had to. Uh, But not only that, another—it's funny how my all my choices for first base are lefties. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm the same way, and because I just thought there was there when you're looking at it from a defensive standpoint, there's just something cool about watching a great left-handed first baseman. I
0: I agree with that totally, where I I have such a bias towards left-handed first baseman. I I just love watching them. It's it's, it's such an advantage at that position to be left-handed. I mean, you obviously can play it right-handed. There's many a gold glove first baseman that's right-handed, but there's just something about a lefty. The angles are just perfect, especially like with the Keith Hernandez situation where you're going to throw the ball, it's just lined up just perfectly for a left-hander.
1: Yeah. And then, uh, you know, we mentioned Will Clark as well. So Cooper Mattingly and Will Clark each won three Silver Slugger Awards in the 1980s. Will Clark is a name that you don't really think about much anymore, but uh, probably because injuries derailed his career, much like Don Mattingly, but Clark's career was even shorter. And he was a guy for about four or five seasons you could argue and say he was probably the best first baseman overall in the National League when he played for the Giants.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, he was a star. He, he was a superstar for for a while. And then he signed that big contract with the Rangers mm-hmm. and then never really was able to fulfill that deal. And as you say, it was it was due to injuries. Right. But he was a player that when he came up with the Giants, he, he was just a ball of energy. Yeah. Great, great defensively, you know – great home run hitter, great you know hit for a high average. He could do everything.
1: He was a little salty in terms of personality. He was not known as the nicest guy to be around. But you don't necessarily, you know, nice teams finish last in a lot of cases. And, uh, you know, Will Clark almost single-handedly out-hit the Cubs in the 89 NLCS to get the Giants into the World Series because Kevin Mitchell, who was the MVP award winner and hit like, almost 50 home runs really struggled in that series. It was Will Clark. I think Will Clark had an insane NLCS. Him and Mark Grace, I think were were dueling as to who was going to win the MVP because whichever team won the series, that guy was going to win MVP because I think they batted like 500 and 600, you know, between the two of them.
0: And that, you know, that's the age-old discussion in any sport is what could have been with somebody who had injuries. You know, somebody who is great. I mean, it happens all the time. And it's always sad when someone, you know, is just on on the, the cusp of greatness. And maybe they end up having a good career. You know, I'm thinking, you know, our one of our favorite Phillies, Chase Utley, mm-hmm. you know, just was spectacular. Then he had knee injuries. And, you know, maybe he makes it into the Hall of Fame. Probably not. Uh, it would be my guess. But, you know, much like a Don Mattingly, just had had a great run. And you know Will Clark was the same way. You know Will Clark was somebody that if you were uh, if you were, you were picking a team in the in the mid to late eighties, you you know Will Clark was going to be a, a lot on a lot of people's teams.
1: Sure. All right, let's move to second base. And I already mentioned the two names that I was going to bring up, and that was one from the National League and one from the American League. So second base, you had Ryan Sandberg from the Cubs in the National League. You had Sweet Lou Whitaker from the uh, Detroit Tigers in the American League. Different types of players. Um, Lou Whitaker, uh, Ryan Sandberg was kind of considered the class of the 80s. He is in the Hall of Fame, won a number of gold gloves, won a number of silver slugger awards. But uh, Lou Whitaker also won four silver slugger awards as well, which pr- people probably don't remember. He was as good offensively as what he was because uh, I think, again, when you, when you mention sort of forgotten names. I think Whitaker's one of those guys. He's not in the Hall of Fame. Um, but for from the 1980s, that Detroit Tiger team but with Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell, uh, those guys played together for the better part of a decade. And, uh, you know, will Lou Whitaker make to the hall, hall of Fame? I don't know. But in the 80s, he was he was, you know, if he wasn't the best, he was probably number two in all of baseball. And Alan
0: Trammell and Lou Whitaker were always considered throughout the eighties the best double play combination in all the baseball. Right. Always. Right. And they you know, you might have had certain teams where, you know, on one side of the bag was a little bit better than the other, but there was no team that that brought two guys who are at Trammell's in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Right. And Lou Whitaker's a borderline Hall of Famer. Right. Um which always stands out what stood out to me back then about Whitaker was he was smooth, you know, yeah. Just, just you know, one of those guys. Maybe that's part of the reason he didn't seem to put a lot of effort, but he was just, just this technician out there defensively.
1: You know, it's it's funny that that that's kind of the common theme when players that you and I have always been gravitated towards. We like the smooth players. We like the guys who are smart. Yeah. You know, forget the. You know, early on, like I said. Reggie Jackson was probably my favorite baseball player. But as I started to become more involved in the game, you really started to get drawn towards the guys that were so technically on the defensive side, the guys who were so good at their craft defensively. Like you could just watch them out there, like you said, like an artist painting a canvas, watching Gary Maddox chase a ball down in the gap, watching Keith Hernandez charge a bunt, watching Trammel and Whitaker turn a double play. You know, just things like that are... are Things that you and I have always loved to watch as mm-hmm. fans.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, oftentimes second base is a position where you'll stick a guy who, you know, and I'm thinking just because it was his nickname is Scrappy, like Phil Garner, Scrap mm-hmm. Iron Garner. You know, kind of those glue players. Because mm-hmm. that is a position where you need somebody that's steady.
1: Right. And they have to have some, a little bit of toughness to them because usually they got spiked or whatever. You know, plays yeah. happen at second base. Uh, Phil Garner was was along those lines. Um, oh, what's his name played for the Mets? Um, not Howard Johnson. Uh, Wally Backman. Mm-hmm. Wally Backman was that type of a player too, kind of a blood and guts kind of guy that was gonna do whatever he needed to do to get to stay on the team and to be a contributor. And uh, you know that's that's the type of players that typically, you know, we mentioned in the '70s, the shortstop was good glove, you know, weak bat uh and then in the in the in the 80s you know the second baseman kind of fit that kind of tough squat built um you know smart uh, nosy kind of baseball player and that it's just that it kind of follows the same recipe
0: although I, I a player that i like that i don't know really fit that mold was bobby gritch
1: bobby gritch was um uh, was the best Defensive second baseman.
0: But I don't know if you'd say he was a scrappy type of player. He was he was bigger.
1: He was a little bit bigger. And, and he yeah. was more of a slugger. He could hit the ball out of the yard. Yeah. Which
0: was why I think he was a little unusual for me. And I, I, I was kind of drawn to him a little bit because, you know, he had, he had a career with the Orioles, you know, before that. And so I, knew, I kind of knew about his history a little bit. So he was a big free agent signing uh, by the Angels uh, back in the 80s. And he was bigger, but... Where a lot of guys, like a Lou Whitaker, might have, have been a ballet dancer out there and, and jumped over top of somebody sliding into him. Bobby Gritch was this big dude. Right. And guys would slide into him and he blocked the bag.
1: And right. they would, they'd kind of just bounce off they of him. They would bounce off of him, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, there's there's two shortstops that really stand out to me in the 1980s. And they really couldn't be any more different.
0: But, let me see if I can guess. Yeah. Uh, Cal Ripken
1: Jr.? Cal Ripken and Jr. Ozzie and Ozzie Smith. On Ozzie Smith. Yeah. yeah a uh, very different type of player and Cal Ripken was always known as more of an offensive player cuz he by the you know when he came up the Orioles won the World Series in 1983 and then they very quickly start to decline. You know that team had aged. It was sort of their last hurrah. And then they had to rebuild the team and by 1989 the Baltimore Orioles were nothing except Cal Ripken Jr. They really mm-hmm. they were, were really bottom of the barrel. Like I said, I used to go down and watch them play at Old Memorial Stadium a number of times. And I remember going down there. It was against the Oakland A's. It was the beginning of the year, and the Orioles hadn't won yet. And I think they were like... Oh, yeah, like, I remember that year. They were like yeah. 0 for 16, or mm-hmm. it was just, they were off to a horrible start. And uh, it was Cal Ripken and nothing else at, at that particular time. And, uh, you know, Credit the guy for, you know, you said about, you know, back in the day guys would stay with the same team their entire career. Well, Cal Ripken was one of the last Gen X ballplayers to really do that, where he stayed with the team for 20 years and stayed with the Orioles from beginning to end because I'm sure he probably had times where he could have walked away. And also another example of
0: someone who, who came up very young. I mean, he was really young when he came up, and, and he was big. You know, he, it was unusual for someone his size, six foot four. Uh, you know, 200-plus pounds, to play shortstop. In that era, it was unusual.
1: He originally came up as a third baseman, and then Earl Weaver, who was the manager at the time, felt that he could play the shortstop position. He was right. I mean, Cal, Cal won, I think, four gold gloves in his career. Very good defensive player. He was known as being in the right place at all times. Sure. George Will, in his book that he wrote, Uh, in the 90s about baseball, one of the chapters he devotes to Cal Ripken Jr. And I think it's the book's called Men at Work. And uh, he devotes an entire chapter to just Cal Ripken's thought process and his positioning and how he could read what the pitcher was going to throw and the batter's tendencies to know where to be at at all times. And it just was a great study in a guy who was – kind of operating at the genius level of his craft and always seemed to, because being six foot four, he becomes the prototype for all the future shortstops. Alex the Alex
0: Rodriguez's of the world. and Yeah, I mean, but he, he was the guy who broke through. So he comes up as, as this revolutionary shortstop. Then as he ages and slows down a little bit, he moves over to third base. He's a very good third baseman. Then as he ages a little bit more, he moves across the diamond and plays some first base. And so for me it's always interesting to see those great players. They usually do something like that throughout their career. They, they're good enough because they're good enough defensively and good enough athletes and understand the game enough where they can move around. And I, I always kind of admired that, where you're not just such a specialist that you can only play the one position. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the guy who was the, say, you know, spectacular center fielder. And he uses, loses a step, and then you move him over to right field. I mean that's very typical, and where you you know you have the, you know if, just the ability as you're as you're waiting your time. An example we talk Keith Hernandez. I remember seeing Keith Hernandez playing the outfield, Mm -hmm. you know because he was blocked at first base, or he was a better outfielder than what they could get, and so then if they were going to put someone else at first base, sure, you know you you had that ability, and that was something Cal brought,
1: right. And on the other side, on the flip side, we have the National League and the greatest defensive shortstop. Of all time, of all time, which is Ozzie Smith. Yeah, a guy who managed to play such a hard position his entire career and never and never have to make that switch because he was so great at what he did. Never had, never saw anybody with hands like Ozzie Smith. Uh, he, he, and I remember the the announcers like Whitey Ashburn would always comment, you know, he's not from a fundamental standpoint, he's not the most technically perfect shortstop jimmy rollins is the most technically perfect shortstop i mean you know his fundamentals are flawless Mm -hmm. ozzie smith he had just this flair about him and he could make some of the most spectacular plays and he did it all those years on that horrible turf in st louis now he started out with the padres and as we mentioned before got traded straight up for gary templeton and um so he goes to st louis wins a world series in 82 and has a great career with, with the Cardinals, like I said, playing on a horrible field.
0: Makes himself into a really good hitter.
1: Becomes yep. a very competent hitter.
0: When, when he came up, he, he was not good at all, and that's part of the reason why the trade was made. He always was the spectacular defensive player. Didn't have a gun for an arm, which is kind of unusual for a shortstop. He he definitely used that AstroTurf to bounce the ball over on certain occasions to get a little more speed. Um but he was just so incredibly quick and and he was an acrobat out there, and he would always you know do his flip at the beginning of the year when he'd run right. out out onto the field and kind of a charming, engaging guy that the, the type of player that kids love
1: and as you know as the Phillies and Cardinals kind of doled it out against each other in the 1980s, uh, Ozzie Smith. As many of the other Cardinals players did at that particular time, they just had a way of just uh, those running Redbirds. They would they would just torment the Phillies, and Ozzie Smith was always in the middle of it. One of those guys that was constantly on base, a great base dealer. Uh, you know, didn't have the highest on base percentage, but like you said, he built his average up over time, kind of like what Larry Boa did in the seventies. Mm-hmm. You know, he developed himself into a major league hitter. Was he a great one? He he hit one of the more famous walk off home runs in NLCS history against the Dodgers in I think it was '85. Um, that that was when uh, Jack Buck famously said, "Go crazy, folks! Go crazy!" That's Right. And that was Ozzy Smith that hit that home run. So, uh, you know, it turned out turned himself out to be a very good uh, hitter offensively to go along with with just spectacular defense and well deserved to be in the Hall of Fame and.
0: When you say spectacular, that that's not hype. No, I mean that. I, if if I could think of a, of a better superlative than that, I would use it. But he he was just a, a pure magician out there.
1: I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker, but Ozzie Smith and Tommy Herr way pretty darn good double play combination. Mm-hmm. Sure, for many years. So uh, yeah, so that's shortstop. Hey everyone, it's Scott from the Gen X Playback Show. Not exactly the 7th inning stretch, but we're going to take a break right now in our conversation about the all-Gen X baseball team uh, from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. So far we've covered the 70s and about halfway through the 80s, about half the positions. And then next week we'll cover the rest of the 80s and then the 90s, and then we'll go through our all Gen X baseball team lineups. I know we did two teams. Each guy, Sean and I, each picked two lineups in addition to our starting pitchers. So hopefully you're enjoying a conversation about baseball. Baseball, uh, for many, many years, and to many people, including Sean and myself, is considered the national pastime. Some would argue that football is taking that over, but baseball is still very near and dear to our hearts. And as baseball is turned into the 21st century and it's still a great game for for those especially playoff baseball ranks right up there with any of the great uh, sports moments of all time so hopefully you're enjoying our conversation and brings back some good memories for you we will talk to you next week as we complete our talk about our all gen x baseball team so for my brother sean i am scott we are the brothers high You've been listening to the Gen X Playback Show, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. I'm talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the duke. They know them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the duke.